Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is the official Winning Time podcast from HBO, Hyperobject Industries, and Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Rodney Barnes. I want to build something special. The Los Angeles Lakers select... The entire league is on the verge of bankruptcy. Irvin. With me, it's going to be exciting. Magic. Our girls, they won't cheer. They'll dance. Johnson. It's showtime! First up is the great Rob Morgan, who plays Magic's father, Irvin Johnson Sr. And later, I'll catch up with Don Ravine, the basketball trainer who helped our cast play like a real team. But before we get into it, let's rewind for a recap of Episode 7. Dr. Jerry Buss, doesn't it always seem like he's in hot water? The business side of things feels like it's about to implode, and his family life is starting to fall apart when Mama Buss is diagnosed with metastatic cancer. But Buss, as always, is determined to find a way to come out on top. Thing about luck is... It cuts both ways. Meanwhile, Paul Westhead is still lost in his new role as interim head coach. He can't seem to muster up the confidence he needs to really lead the team. But the answer to his troubles might just be sitting in his office. Enter Pat Riley. What do you think about if we make this something more official? This thing, you and me. And without a real leader, the Lakers are struggling to prep for a string of big games. Time to take the Maddie show on the road. First stop, Indiana. Then, Detroit, where they make a pit stop at Magic's childhood home. And finally, they head to Boston to take on their rivals, the Celtics. Even though they beat the Celtics, their win isn't good enough to keep Westhead around. With Jack McKinney still recovering in L.A., Buss has to figure out what he's going to do about his head coach. I need to make a run this season, Jack. Then bet on me. Is McKinney back in, or will Buss look for someone else? because there's always someone waiting in the wings. My first guess, in my opinion, is one of the greatest actors of all time and a crucial member of this show. Rob Morgan, thank you for coming in, and welcome to the Winning Time Podcast. <laughs> Mr. Rodney Barnes, thank you for having me, sir. Boy, that's a sexy intro. Just as soon as I hear your voice, man. 
you by proxy, you make me feel sexy as soon as you start talking, man. Hey, man, that ain't that what we're about? <laughs> Uplifting the, the next brother and sister, you know, showing our greatness through them. Yeah, the, definitely. The, the, this is true. That's a beautiful sentiment. That's what it's about. Uh, I know a little bit of this from mm-hmm. our conversations and dinners and such, but what made you want to act? And what mm-hmm. were you doing before you got the acting bug? Man, you know, like most of the things uh, men fall into, you're chasing a hot young lady Uh-oh. that you have interest in. Uh, young sister uh, Margaret Terry is her actual name. Uh, came down to D.C. from New York to pursue acting, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, she gave me an idea about going to an open call for this movie Contact with mm-hmm. Jodie Foster and Matt McConaughey. Never knew what an open call was, anything like that, you know, but I was just chasing her. So I was like, cool, if you're going to be there, I'm going to be there, Uh-oh. you know. Show up, man, and it's like 3,000 beautiful people that I've never seen before. And I was like, where are all these? I mean, I grew up in D.C. Like, where are all these people come? I've never seen none of these people. Like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? So I didn't know anything about a headshot resume. Go up to the desk, and they're like, you know, you got a headshot resume? And I'm like, no, you know. And it's like, all right, we'll take your picture. You know, luckily I had a little bit of style. Always had my own style. So yes, it was something do. about my style that they really like. And so, you know, do the open call, take the picture, looking around, mesmerized by all the beautiful people in the room. Uh, cattle call, essentially. That's what we call it now. Mm-hmm. Um Go to work the next day. Margaret comes over to my desk. Hey, did they call you? I'm like, nah, who? The people. Oh, nah, nobody called me. Did they call you? No. Cool. Come back next day. Did they call you? Who? No. Did they call you? No. Next day, phone rings. Speak to Rob Morgan. Yeah, this is him. Hey, this is XYZ from the uh, uh, open call at contact. We like to offer you five days of work. So I run over to Margaret's desk. Margaret, did they call you? She's like, no. I said, they called me. <laughs> She's like, they called you? I said, yeah. They said something about five days of work. She said, go, go, go. And I was like, okay. But they never called her. So I basically had to go by myself. Show up. i am always been an observer. I've been an observer more than a talker. You know, I like to take in my environment, see what's going on first before I see where I fit in. So I'm in the bus, you know, listening to the people talk about this movie and this big opportunity. I didn't know what was going on, man. I'm just like, you know, deer in headlights, soaking in all this information. And then by like the third or fourth day, I said, man, I don't think I did anything for my mother to see me. I want my mom to see me. Now, how can I get my mother to see me in this movie? And I'm just watching the uh, set and I saw them pop this guy with long white hair over there, right? And I was like, ooh. I must need to stand right there. I literally go and stand in this spot for five hours. Next thing you know, they started building the set around me. I guess wow. they looked at me like, well, this motherfucker he ain't, ain't moving. moving. He ain't moving. <laughs> he ain't moving. <laughs> he ain't yeah. moving. And so they started building the set around me. And next thing you know, the guy with the long white hair pops up next to me. And it's uh, Jake Busey, mm-hmm. you know, Gary Busey's yeah. son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's the scene where Jodie Foster's walking in to ask more money from President Clinton to do outer space explorations, right? And I'm like, all right, me growing up in D.C., how would I feel if this woman came out here to ask for this millions of dollars for outer space explorations while it's kids in school with no books, they're taking away art programs, we're suffering economically, culturally. And so naturally my instinct came to say, well, how would I feel? And I didn't know anything about acting class. I didn't know anything about digesting information and putting your truth in it and all that. Man, I just started yelling. 
Because <laughs> at first, you know, they say background, you can't yeah. make noise, you got to mime. So I'm yeah. miming, you know. And then they say, all right, background, now you can make noise. And they right. explain the scene. And I was like, oh, I can make noise? And they was like, yeah. I was like, man, get a real job. Ain't nothing out of space. Don't waste my tax dollar. I'm screaming at Jody. She's looking at me like, that's not we in got the script. Worried. Yeah, we got worried about this, bro. Yeah, where's security? She's like, yeah. that's not in the script. You know, what the hell? What's that? But I see her looking at me the whole time. And I'm like, getting pumped up. I'm into yeah. it, right? Yeah. Next thing you know, Jake Busey looks at me. He says, you're creative. I said, hey, man, I'm just trying to get some burn. You know, I'm looking at him like, you know, like, yeah, I'm just trying to get some burn. And he's like, well, keep it up. He said, keep it up. I was like, oh, man. And next thing you know, I see a microphone over my head. Wow. And I saw the microphone, and man, it was like, oh, it's showtime now. <laughs> and so I just kept doing the lines, and they said, all right, you know, that's, you know, uh, check the gate. Now I know the language. Check the gate on the scene or whatever. I literally just walked right over to Video Village, thinking nothing of it. I guess I made such an impression, they must have thought I was part of the scene. Right. I literally leaned right over Robert Zemeckis as he was looking at the monitor with the playbacks, and I saw me, and I was like, Yo, that's me. And all he did was looked up at me like this and gave me that head nod. So six months later, fast forward, you know, they got to produce the movie. They got to edit it and all that. Put it in the theater. And I'm thinking, oh, let me go check this out. I went by myself. Didn't know what to expect, man. Next thing you know, I hear my voice. And then I see my face with my voice. And man, I literally jumped out that seat so high, damn near hit the the top of that theater. And I came down and I was like, oh my God, like, did anybody see me? Like, anybody know that was me? You know, and I was just sitting there. I was literally sitting there in a tight ball, like, I just saw myself on screen. Oh my God. Wow, that was amazing. It was like this rush just came through me. And I told myself that night, this is what I gotta do. When you first got hold of the script, mm-hmm. what did you think of this role and um, just this opportunity in general? Man, uh, first I thought, why isn't there more information out there about this brother, right. you know, publicly? Right. So uh, I found it to be a beautiful challenge to, like, stare into the eyes of his picture and just imagine and then look at, you know, magic in real life and imagine and I just felt like it was a like a kid in a candy store, man. You know, I got to really pull from the the training mm-hmm. that actors get, you know, because when you have real life footage and real life stuff from people, you can get that and imitate it, you know, no problem. You could take that and download it, you could process it and all that, but when you ain't got nothing. Right. And you got to trust on your intuitions, which is often what we taught in the beginning of our careers, is that you really have to trust your intuitions. And then we got on set and started doing it. And, you know, Adam was embracing of what I was doing and all the other directors was embracing of what I was doing. It, it felt like, not that I've arrived, but like I've got some type of command of my instrument in a way that I could be comfortable doing Characters mm-hmm. like this, you know what I mean? And it was so much that you brought to the character, like nuance that wasn't on the page. 
Yeah. Especially when you were with Young Magic. Mm-hmm. And we were going through the basketball stuff, and you were doing the Snap It. Yeah. You think I forgot. Nah. <laughs> all of that stuff that you would pitch and that you would do, and it's like you would embody everything that we wanted that character to be beyond what we had imagined mm-hmm. up until that point. You know why I feel that is, brother? Because I look at acting or storytelling damn near just like basketball. The best players move without the ball. Right. We're in the scene. I'm in it. I'm alive. Like that situation you just brought up, we were setting up a shot, Mm -hmm. and I saw the young boy out there, and I was like, look, man, you know what I would do with you right now? I would take you out on the court and ball you up. Let's get out there and let's do something while they're setting up this shot. Right. Don't use your palm when you're dribbling. Use your fingertips. I'm taking like four or five steps. Now you got the ball. Keep your head up. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Look straight ahead. And I guess Adam and you all saw it and was like, Point the camera over there. <laughs> but that's how the beauty, and man, like if I would have just been sitting there, you know, just waiting and chilling and not trying to build chemistry with me and my exactly. co-star. And just doing what's on the page and doing what is the minimum that's required. Nah, brother. You move without the ball, man. That's beautiful, man. Thank you, my brother. Um, the relationship between Magic and his father, since you didn't have a lot mm-hmm. to go from, how do you see that dynamic? Because you and Quincy have a unique dynamic. Oh, yeah. How was that cultivated? Did the two of you talk about it? How'd you find it? Well, uh, when you listen to Magic, he he credits his family a lot for his attitude, his personality, his success, and particularly, you know, he shouts out his father Mm -hmm. for putting his work ethic in him, his vision in him, and things of that nature. So um, right there I felt, all right, if it's not much about his father that is uh, given on the internet or or through articles and things of that nature, I could look at the source that Mm -hmm. was inspired by him and pick out little things, you know, that I can incorporate in my character to kind of marry the two, you know, so that people can understand and see the influence Irvin Sr. had on Irvin Jr. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then with Quincy and I, I mean, he's a beautiful brother, man. You know, he's a big smile, uh, very warm, genuine, genuine, very mm-hmm. smart, very talented. I'm and getting so, uncomfortable giving Quincy all these compliments. <laughs> right. Quincy's the man, though, man. <laughs> so what we did was, you know, when they had basketball practice, I came through basketball practice. With I the want, broken foot? We, all of it. Yeah. All of it, you know, and I wanted to play around and shoot with him and... You know, while they were running their drills, I'd be screaming his name and shouting him out and pumping him up, and you know what I mean, like a father would. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I really took him under my wing in that sense, as much as the grown man would let me. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. I felt like it was just a natural cohesion between us because I think he's just a, a real brother. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Under all of this Hollywood stuff, he's really a real brother too, you know? He comes from a good family, you know? And... um we were able to not have that, oh, he's calling me, I ain't going to call him back, or I'm going to wait till he call me type thing. You know, yeah. we ain't had none of that, man. It was like, hey, brother, what you doing today? I'm doing this today. All right, cool. I'm going to roll through. All right, cool. Let's go. I'm going to come pick you up. I'm going to come pick you up. You know what I mean? And we just started from the start. But I think going to the uh, basketball trainings and practices really helped. And then going to dinner and stuff with you, too. (laughs) You know, I think that really helped build our chemistry, too. He mentioned to me, um, I believe it's on uh, the first podcast that he was on, about how he lost his father when he was three. Mm. 
and working with you, he would use what he thought his relationship would be with his real father mm. working with you. Wow. And that was what he used to sort of create that emotional bridge between Magic and his father. Yeah. And that he was thankful that you were the guy that was across from him. And that was always, like, to me, a motivator to yeah. get you guys and to create scenes to put you two guys together because it's magic to me. No pun intended. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, that's heavy, man. You know, but that's how we, you know, um, uplift each other and, and support each other and inspire each other, you know. Yeah. Um, the character arc, because Irvin Sr., even, even though he doesn't have a lot of screen time and mm -hmm. over the course of season one, there's some pivotal moments, certainly in the pilot, where after the sand dab scene, there's a scene with you guys in the hotel room where it's a generational divide where you're talking, you're speaking from a place of working the Chrysler line mm -hmm. and the garbage business and all of that. And now your son has been offered almost half a million dollars. And you're like, what are you doing? Irvin, pull your head out your ass. All I know is you got 400,000 in the one hand, nothing in the other. Pretty simple choice to me. That's you, Pop. How do you see that storyline play out? Like, what feelings may you have had about that arc, that journey, from starting at one point of the son mm -hmm. that you're in command of and this man that's growing into a different reality? Man, um... I remember that scene, um, and a lot of that was pulled from me thinking about my grandfather, Calvin Augustus Simmons, and how hard he worked to get everybody out in the field before the sun came up and uh, work until the sun went down and then was responsible for getting everybody home safely, but then still having the wear and thaw to, like, come home and get whatever food we had left over and go and visit, like, the elderly that didn't have people to come visit them. And, you know, uh, him dragging me to all of that as a kid wow. and seeing, you know, uh, how fortunate yet unfortunate we were, you know, to mm -hmm. still have to have this grueling, uh, taxing life to survive, but then still having it in your heart to use what little energy you may have to extend yourself to others, mm -hmm. you know, in need and things of that nature. So uh, for that scene, I was coming from a place of a man who really all he had was his pickup truck and a tobacco field to, like, wake up 18, 20 years later to his son or even, in my case, grandson making half a million dollars right you know and and then how uh ultimately i want to live my ancestors wildest dreams you know that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite sayings yeah. you know because essentially that's what we are doing yeah you know and um in that moment it was like is my son gonna throw my dream away or <laughs> <laughs> well, does he realize does he realize yes yeah. you know yeah. that he's throwing my dream away and and like he's so casual and cavalier about it and it's like this is urgent man exactly like, this is this is real deal stuff like and speaking of those ancestors they rarely had an opportunity if ever to be in the position that you're in right now 
And if you don't take it seriously, it yeah. could go away. Easy. Easy. Because, you know, we came up, we understood Jordan was a good player, but Jordan wasn't the best player. A lot of best players is in jail. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's, this is true. that's just the juxtaposition of our yeah. existence in this society. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think I was approaching him in that scene with, with that understanding. Like, look, son, okay now. Don't get that's why one of my favorite lines in that is like pull your head out your ass, Irvin. Yes. yes. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> stop sniffing your own ass. This is this is yeah. legacy right here. You you got a chance to turn our whole family around, brother. So yeah. you know, and, and thankfully, uh that's one of the scenes that most of the brothers stopped me about ever since it's yes. it's played. Yes. It came out March sixth, man, every day since March sixth. If I'm out in the street, a brother has come up to me and told me how impactful that scene was. Mm -hmm. And I asked one of them, I said, in particular, I said, wow, you know, what is so, what's, because even one of my friends, a good friends, Oscar-nominated writer, told me, man, you know, I think that might have been the best role I've ever seen you in. I said, well, I was barely in it. How was that? No. And he was like, you know why? Because every brother wished their father would talk to them like that. Every brother wished their father had that kind of, softness and emotional capacity towards them. When you told him, at least people here loves you, he was talking, and this is a grown-ass man with two kids, married, damn, 15 years, had tears in his eyes. Wow. Telling me how impactful that scene was. And, you know, I I, I mean, I, I played it right. to the best of my ability at yeah. the moment. But, man, this 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 relationship... It's going to be therapeutic in a lot of ways, and especially how we roll it out. I mean, I, can't, I don't want to say anything else, but yeah. I but think that this was is going to be therapy, brother. That was the thinking behind it, <sighs> was to elevate, like you said, in the research that uh, we did on our end, Magic always spoke about his father with reverence. Yes. So in the writing of it, wanted that reverence to come out clearly. Mm -hmm. And your instrument is so powerful that finding those words, like I find myself, and I'm sure I'm speaking for Max too, mm -hmm. we push ourselves yeah. to get to a place where it's like, okay, we know, we want the scene to land. Mm -hmm. And in order for it to land, it has to have the substance in there to grab those moments that we know to be true mm -hmm. outside of the show. Yeah. Um, which brings me to episode seven, the scene with you and Kareem, Kareem. at the table. <laughs> Most men I know, black men, we laugh, enjoy our lives, but America does things to a man's mind and soul that aren't happy. Pardon my saying it, but your son seems unaffected by all that. Because he is. How? Wish I knew. I'm from Mississippi. Down there, we're gator bait. Wasn't a week went by when I was young, ain't seen some strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. Then you know too well, but he don't. Part of my macabre sensibility mm -hmm. is I wanted to hear you sing uh -huh. the strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. Uh -huh. That's why that uh, moment 
We did a couple of takes like we that. We did do a couple of okay. takes. But my singing ain't the best. But. I loved it. Come on, man. Come on, man. You Barry White without the high blood pressure. Come on, man. Right. Come and on, the Jerry Kerr. Exactly. Exactly. Um, can we talk about that scene a little bit? Because you brought a lot to it. You brought a lot to that day on set. Oh, yeah. You know, the command. That was the first time I see Rob kind of a different Rob, a different version of Rob take control of the set that day. Um, oh, but if you could talk about that and talk about the scene a little bit, because it was a beautiful scene, mm. brought a lot to it. I think it's one of the few scenes with you and uh, Solomon. Yeah. And both of you guys, I think a lot of your leadership actually helped him. I'm sure if he was sitting here right now, he'd say the same thing. Um <laughs> Just, man, your, your way of gently guiding and leading. Mm. Um, but I'm about to go into another love thing with Rob, so I'm going <laughs> to let you answer the question. Well, you know, uh, I come from the days of uh, you get more with sugar than you do shit. Yes, that's true. That's very true. You that's know what been I mean? proven it scientifically. Yeah, and um, I understood Solomon had expressed to me, like, you know, this might have been like one of his... It was first, first yeah, second it was first, job. First, yeah, okay, yeah, and he expressed first, yeah. that to me, and I understand how that is to be on on set like that, and with all these moving pieces, and with you know such high stakes, and ultimately, I want everybody to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, I want everybody. To, I mean, I know I have a strong presence. I know my energy strong. I've been taught that ever since I was a kid, and so uh, in these situations, I want everybody to feel like. Even the background, you know, I even mm-hmm. include background with my stuff because I want everybody, because if, if everybody ain't comfortable to play and have fun and give their best, then we're going to have to either do it again or the scene going to get cut because it ain't going to read real. It's like finding, you want people to find themselves within a scene and in order to do that, they have to feel included. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Solomon is a beautiful human being. He man. Is. Beautiful human being. Uh, and he's seven foot two. And he's just a, a powerful man in his own right. And I uh, wanted to empower him with understanding that him being there was a win. Yes. You know, by brother. You know, people, it's millions of brothers seven foot that would love to be here right now. Right. They picked you for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, let's have some fun, you know. And uh, I, he was very open to the advice. And uh, I think when we started doing the scene, you know, it became natural, and he, his Kareem really popped out. Yes, you know what I mean. And um, I, I can't, I don't want to take any credit for that because I know the brother prepared at home and the brother prepared, you know, in the gym. But uh, I am glad that you definitely I definitely set a tone. I can say <laughs> that you definitely set a tone for that day and that scene that undeniably helped that moment in that scene. Mm. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a team player, man. I believe teamwork makes the dream work. Mm-hmm. That you it know, does. and uh, if I can uh, assist my teammate and, and make them look stellar, mm-hmm. then that ain't doing nothing but making me look stellar. So, you have a cat. Yeah, Queen Inzinga Flack. <laughs> okay, that's my baby. Now, it, for the folks that follow you on Instagram, <laughs> they will see you walk the cat on a leash. Yeah, brother. Can you can you can you speak on the cat with the walk on the leash? Because I've never seen this before. <laughs> well, when did it start? Why did it start? 
Did was you concerned that she wouldn't come home? What was it? What? what well, well, brother, you know, uh, every man uh, is particular in how he handles his cat. This is true. You know, this is and, true. And, and, this and is if true. your cat desires to have some freedom and go outside, mm-hmm. sometimes you gotta take the cat outside. Yeah. But actually, man, the the truth behind the whole cat thing, uh, my man Jonathan Majors, uh, salute that brother, very talented brother. He travels with two dogs. Uh-oh. A pit bull and, like, some other big-ass dog. <laughs> like, literally 200 pounds of dog. And he gets him on the plane and everything. And I remember I was in Boston, and uh, I was talking to him. He's like, man, you know, they wasn't going to let me on my plane with the dog one time. And I called my manager, like, look, man, if they ain't going to let my dog on the plane, I ain't getting on the plane. Wow. And so the manager convinced the people that it was an emotional support animal. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about that. And he was like, yeah, they're my emotional support animals. We're in a lonely business, man. This I'm going to be true. real honest with y'all. Whoever's listening to this, I know the, the the fame and the celebrity and all that looks sexy, man, but this is a lonely-ass business. Unless you already have your family intact, you have your, your team intact. But if you're out here single brother or sister, this is a lonely business. So with that being said, I said, man, you know what? I need an emotional support animal. You know, I'm not I'm not comfortable walking around picking up dog shit, but you know. <laughs> so I love dogs. I love yeah, dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love dogs. Yeah. I'm a dog guy. Like yeah. Pitts and Connie Carsoles is my joint. You know, I love a dog, but man, for my lifestyle and for the convenience, a cat can go right in the box, clean that up, keep it moving. Cat can sit in the crib for four or five days with food and water, come back. To Crib is still intact. I said, you know what? Let me get me a cat, man. And so I got this cat, Queen and Zinga Flat. Got her for my birthday. Went uh, went to a shelter, found her, uh, fell in love with her. And man, that's been my girl ever since, man. Like, I don't have her. I travel with her everywhere I go. I didn't bring her this trip because yeah. this trip was supposed to only been like five days, but it extended to two weeks. But, um, yeah, man, I, I go everywhere with her, man. And then to uh, put her on a leash... I just, you know, I'm a different kind of cat. Man. Yes, you I'm are. A different kind of brother. Literally, you know I mean? you're a different I, kind I, of cat. I certainly yes. am. And I always was impressed with, like, you know, cats on leashes and being able to take them wherever you want to go. And so I went on YouTube, YouTube University, and saw how to train a cat to be on the leash. And I followed it. And now she's cool on the leash. I can take her anywhere I want. Well, Rob. Brother. Thank you for coming in here. I love Rob Morgan. Love you back, my brother. My next guest is Sidon Ravine, basketball trainer to the pros and to the stars of winning time. Sidon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, buddy. Appreciate it. So, Sidon, what exactly is your official title on the show? Honestly, Rod, I, I, I don't know what I call myself other than, like, the guy responsible for the basketball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't really even know the answer to that question. Yes. I just, basketball, call it done. Yes, that's it. Uh, had you ever worked on a television show before? No, I never had. This was my first. Um, I definitely had a lot of experience working on very big national commercials, and so I was familiar with the process, but I had never done something on this scale. So when the first call came in, it was about, can I turn 
Quincy into Magic Johnson. And I kind of laughed and said, there's 400 guys in the NBA who can't be Magic Johnson. Right. And I said, how long do I have? He said, well, what about a week? And I was like, <laughs> I was like <laughs> okay, yeah. sure. I was like, I'll entertain this. Let me come out. And uh, then you and the team were happy with it. And then it became Quincy. Then it became Devon. Then it became Delonte. Then it became Solomon. Then it became everybody else. Um, and then the responsibility just kind of grew after that. And then it became not just a training piece. It became uh, specifically making sure that the actors were the silhouettes of their characters. Then it became responsible for our casting. That's basketball-related, including a few of the guys on the Lakers show. Then it became making sure that um, there was proper script interpretation, making sure also that the choreography that we dreamed up really reflected the intent of the writers, because to me that was incredibly important. So I probably read those scripts 44 million times because <laughs> I, it was important for me to get in your head and understand yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like what is it that you intended to do? What was like the, like the What was the emotional beat of that scene? What was the intent of that scene? What were you trying to sort of convey? So talk to me about, because I know it's a multifaceted um, journey because you have to get guys in shape. Yeah. You know, then you have to get them acclimated to the game of basketball. Yeah. And then specifically, you have to make them whoever, sure. some idea of whoever it is that they're portraying. What's a day in the life like for an actor going through this process? So, like, I kind of broke down this process into three phases. The, the first phase is that most of the actors that we cast were former collegiate football players mm-hmm. or they were um you know very like avid like uh intramural kind of pickup players and then we had solomon obviously who was kind of in sort of a different you know uh, category level because level, yeah. he was much more refined yeah so the first step for me in my process was kind of taking that football body movement and making it much more basketball specific so there was an athletic piece first that we had to shave down because basketball is a very vertical sport as well, mm-hmm. as opposed to football. I mean, a couple of players have more vertical responsibility, but it's much more on the ground. So it was kind of refining that physical piece, which was the agility, the quickness, the speed, the power, the balance, all that had to sort of mirror the athleticism of the basketball player. And then once we passed that phase, then the next phase would be kind of to really improve the technical ability, the basketball skill level of, of the actor. And then there's, those are the simple things as like, uh, um, you know, shooting, dribbling, rebound, passing. Then the last phase was being able to turn them into silhouette of their character. And what made that really, really challenging, it's like that they had to be able to do it in a way that would allow them to improvise on set. Because in the event that you or Max or Sally or Todd, they they wanted to sort of see something different. They had to be able to have a normal skill set and the understanding of their characters that they could audible at the line. Mm -hmm. Um, The other parts that was very challenging about the silhouette piece is that it was, I I tried to make sure that it, it was ingrained in their spirit that they have to live breathe this character. So even when you're playing pickup, you can't play pickup like Quincy Isaiah. You have to play pickup like your character. Right. You can never leave out of character. You warm up the character, you move like your character. It has to be persistent. Otherwise, it's easy to see on camera that it doesn't feel right. I, I think for me, this was the most intimate in dealing with basketball mm-hmm. that I think I'd done in my entire career. And so I was always empathetic to the idea of every day you got to live with these guys. You got to train these guys. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure at a certain point, uh, and they're grown men. Yeah. So it's almost like having a coach in your ear 24-7. Yeah. Which couldn't have been easy. And then, you know, in Quincy's case, certainly for Quincy, Devon, and Solomon, they have to act, too, beyond yeah. the idea of basketball. Sure. 
So you got to train, you got to play basketball, you got to act, you got to go through all the other stuff, rehearsals and everything to go with it. Yeah. So, you know, to me, I always give those guys a lot of props for the discipline that it takes to just oh, go through all of that. Absolutely. And I, and I think um, it's it's one thing to play basketball player Bob. It's mm-hmm. another thing to play a figure that everyone around the world knows. So yeah. the added pressure of having to sort of live up to the expectation of the audience. Um, and Devon playing his father. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I think what Solomon did it was remarkable because it's one thing to play college basketball. That's absolutely elevated. But what he had to do as Kareem and what we worked on was counterintuitive to everything he's known his whole life. Right. So when you're an advanced college basketball player, like you have to play fast and powerful. But what made Kareem such a hard check was how unconventional he was that he could play slow and powerful. And it's almost like it, it almost doesn't make sense. So to have to play really slow and really long to be effective when your entire life you've been drilled to play fast, play quick and score. And so that part of the, why the skyhook was a challenging piece was because it literally had to rewire his thinking in terms of like how I score a ball. So it dawned there was a day when I believe we were working on a play, choreographing a play. For Larry Bird. For Larry Bird. Larry Bird comes off a pick, and I believe Spencer Haywood was supposed to meet him. Yes. And blindside him. Yes. Uh, in a very specific way. Yes. Uh, some would call it a dirty play. Yes. And we had gone over it a couple of times, but I wanted you to really understand <laughs> what was needed in this moment. Sure, sure. So I took it upon myself to insert myself into this play as though I were Spencer Haywood and right. you were Larry Bird. Right. Would you right. like to talk about this moment and oh. any lasting effects that that moment may have brought about? Oh, my gosh. So, uh, yeah, so, Ronnie, you jumped into the play to sort of demonstrate what we need to see. And out of nowhere, I mean, like, you kind of put a forearm into my chest and I felt like <laughs> like life and my soul left me for a moment. <laughs> I mean, we joke about in the NBA world, like when I'm looking for an athlete, I'm always looking for someone with a heavy hand. Mm-hmm. You didn't just have a heavy hand. You had mm-hmm. like a heavy universe behind yes. you. There was so much power <laughs> behind that. I thought like Bruce Lee was giving me like the one finger push up. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how quickly like the air came out of me. And then it took me a minute to, for it to come back, right? I remember everybody stopped for a minute because I was talking in the midst of it. I was like, he should do this and he should come around. Yeah. And then... I made contact with your body, and I saw the expression on your face and then the expression on everyone else's face. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I felt bad. No, it's okay. Because I mean, it was never intended to harm. No, sure. You know, but it may have harmed. But it, but it's, if you ever, I like, I love martial arts movies, like karate movies. Yes. And you ever see, like, Bruce Lee doing that punch from, like, an inch away, and the guy kind of yeah. leaves the room? Yeah, it yeah. felt like that Bruce Lee moment. Yeah. And I thought, is Ronnie Seacoley a black belt? Like, no, like no, no, what no, no. is... Bruce ha- Lee Roy. Yeah. No, no, no. How no, does no. he know how to create this power within a two no. inches of space? That was all physics and... Oh, and my God. ...density and, yeah. and a lot of... It took uh, a couple days before the air uh, came back. Well, Adon... Thank you for taking the time to join the Winning Time podcast, and uh, I hope we get to talk again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're almost out of time, but before the shot clock hits, I'm going to take us to our buzzer beater moment of the episode. The team Christmas party at Magic's family home really happened, and Magic's mom's home cooking was a major hit. So much so that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Mrs. Johnson traded recipes in real life. 
Mrs. Johnson had certain dietary restrictions, being a Seventh-day Adventist. And Kareem, as a Muslim, follows Islamic dietary laws. So Kareem going back for thirds made all the sense in the world. He loved her food so much that they kept this up long after Kareem, Magic, and the team hit the road. Thanks for listening to the official Winning Time podcast. And a special thank you to our guests, Rob Morgan and Adon Ravine. You can watch new episodes of Winning Time on HBO Max Sunday nights. Our next episode comes out on April the 24th. See you then. This is the official Winning Time Companion podcast. And it's a production of HBO, Pineapple Street Studios, and Hyper Object Industries. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson, Claire Slaughter, Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our lead producer on the show is Jess Hackle. Aaron Kelly is our managing producer. Shaka Mali, Jonathan Shiflett, and Elliot Adler are our producers. Darby Maloney is our editor, and our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Production music is courtesy of HBO, and you can watch episodes of Winning Time on HBO Max. <laughs>